0: And follow BSL on Twitter. Twitter. Welcome to On The Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. On tonight's episode, we'll take a look at the playoff-bound Bowie Bay Sox and recap the high-A, low-A, and Florida Complex League seasons. In addition, we'll get into a little bit of off-season preview talk and talk about which players we think the Orioles might target, how that could affect the rebuild, and maybe look a little bit further ahead to figure out exactly when we can count on the Orioles trading prospects to make their major league roster better. Uh, all of that's coming up shortly here. But first, On The Verge is brought to you courtesy of Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Mercer is a third-generation family business. that was established in 1959 and is located on Main Street in beautiful, historic downtown of Westminster, Maryland. For all of your flooring needs, think Mercer. So as always, we want to uh, shout out our patrons who support us over at Patreon. And we've got a couple new members this week. And uh, Bob, who are they?
2: Yeah, we got two new ones this week. Taylor Sandroni is the first one. And sorry, I don't know how to pronounce the last name. Sam Lager. Lager. Uh, congratula- not congratulations. congratulations to us to have you come on board. Thank you for joining us. And we're at 48 patrons now, two away from 50. To, uh, I want to give away a free coffee cup to whoever comes up, number 50. And if that doesn't persuade you, then I don't know what will.
0: We do have some very nice coffee mugs in stock here. So consider that if you haven't already. But uh, we'll start off with the big news that happened on Sunday, which was the Bowie Bay Sox defeated the Altoona Curve to advance to the postseason and ended up coming down to the final day. But Bowie makes the playoffs after a really eventful season that saw basically five of the six Orioles' top prospects, according to our current list, wear a Bay Sox uniform at one point, the only one being Colton Couser, who was just drafted this year. Uh, Grayson Rodriguez had a dominant start last week. And it was really, you know, one of those teams that went through a lot of chains, like every other minor league team we've seen this year, and yet managed to just stay good throughout on both sides of the ball. They had some guys come up and hit like Kyle Stowers and Zach Watson. That really took us by surprise a little bit. Adley Rutschman was there for a long time and was obviously great. The pitching staff, you know, held up even after D.L. Hall, went on the injured list. Thanks in no part, no small part to some reinforcements they received from high A Aberdeen, uh, including guys like Drew Rahm and Kyle Bronovitz. So Nick, I'll start with you as uh, Bowie prepares for their postseason series against Akron, which begins on Tuesday thoughts on the Bay Sox season.
1: Uh, It's one of the best seasons down there on the farm this year. I think Uh, it's what kept us sane. I think instead of not focusing on the major league roster so much and, You know, Norfolk kind of struggled a little bit. They've had some issues and using some of the guys they've used. And, you know, Delmarve and Aberdeen were fun, but I think you saw a lot. Like you mentioned, you saw a lot of the top talent in Bowie this year. Uh, I mean, and Sunday was a real testament to, I think, something that we've harped on a lot this year, the coaching staff that they've got down there in Bowie. And it's throughout the whole organization, but specifically what's going on in Bowie. I think it's a key level for minor league development, and I think they've got some really great personnel down there. And Sunday was just an unbelievable game, I think. Just focusing on, on this past weekend, like, I, I'm i going to be honest and say I almost didn't tune in because Mickey Janus was on the mound. Um, and you know, I had a lot of money that I lost yesterday watching week two of the NFL that I was a uh, gonna focus on instead but I said nope might be the last day I'm gonna watch Bowie and good thing I did because I mean these guys the unsung heroes of the season I think really stepped up in a major way it was the Zach Watsons who came out of nowhere this year uh Johnny Reiser's been a solid contributor Andrew Doshbot with a uh, key hit there Gunnar Henderson came up with a key hit the very end of the game I mean it was the less heralded guys that really stepped up yesterday and uh, I think that's been the storyline for a lot of levels of the minor season this year and the biggest one was Cody Roberts, a guy who I'm sure not a lot of people have heard the name before. Um, this journeyman catcher, minor league catcher kind of. But the bullpen was solid. It, it's great. Um, this team was full of guys that this is their first year of pro ball. Uh, Your are Garrett Stallings, uh, Kyle Branovich, uh, these guys, Jordan Westberg now. This is their first pro seasons, and now they're trying to win a championship here. And, and I think that says a lot. Even with Adley gone, Stowers, Neustrom, Bauman, The slew of pitchers that are all in Norfolk now, it's all gone. Uh, They're all gone. They're not in Bowie anymore, yet Bowie is still in this position to take home a championship this weekend. Uh, It's pretty awesome. I think it's really cool for these guys.
2: Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. And, again, it goes to the coaching because it's like it didn't matter who's in the lineup, who's on the mound. They're getting a job done this year. You know, you had Taron Vavra get hurt, Joey Ortiz get hurt, all the promotions, and yet it doesn't matter someone else was stepping up like Vivek said in the in the chat next man up you had Toby well come in he's had a mixed season but he's had his moments and like you said Zach Watson Andrew Doshbach you saw that power surge coming in over the last month or so of the season so just a lot of fun to watch and yeah I'd much rather watch the Billy Bay Sox any night of the week than the Baltimore Orioles especially if you've seen that lineup that's going out there tonight
0: yeah, I would rather not see that lineup that's going out there tonight. But, um, yeah, so Bowie will begin the A Northeast Championship Series tomorrow night at Prince George's Stadium with Gray Fenter on the mound, uh, getting the ball for the Bay Sox. 6.35 start. Uh, be sure to head out to the ballpark if you're in the area or watch it on MILB TV. And we'll be talking about Gray Fenter in a little while uh, when we get down towards the end of the show. But for now, we'll move on. We'll talk about the teams whose seasons have ended, and that includes the Aberdeen Ironbirds, the Delmarva Shorebirds, and the Orioles' two Florida Complex League teams. Across the board, kind of an interesting mix for these teams. Aberdeen ended up finishing just under 500 at 58-61, and but it probably doesn't tell the full story of how their season went. A lot of top prospects come through. They had Jordan Westberg and Gunnar Henderson on the left side of their infield for an extended period of time. Grayson Rodriguez dominated there at the start of the year. They saw a good pitching performances from guys like Drew Rahm, Garrett Stallings, and Kyle Branovich before they were promoted to Bowie. That was where Joey Ortiz's breakout began this year. So all in all, a pretty interesting year for the Ironbirds. And I'll start with Bob. I know that Bob had an opportunity to see the Ironbirds in person a few times this year.
2: Yeah, I did, and I think the thing for me is the pitching. Obviously, towards the end of the season, that kind of faded away just a bit, but especially early in the year when you had uh, Grayson Rodriguez, Blaine Knight, all these guys that eventually ended up in AA Bowie's uh, rotation. You got to see the early signs of what they were going to be able to provide at the upper levels, and I think that was pretty consistent all year. But the, the lineup, I think it was a little top-heavy early on in the season, and then once they got lost a lot of their guys to Bowie, it wasn't quite as potent, especially towards the last month here when Gunnar Henderson and Jordan Westberg had moved up. But still, some pretty good uh, performances and players like TT T. Bowens. He ended the year pretty strong. He's another first base type that's going to be able to slug some home runs in his system over the next couple of years. So, Maverick Hanley, I would have liked to see him stay a little bit more healthy this year. But at least defensively, I think he's just cemented that he is uh, going to be in this organization as long as possible for that alone. And hopefully, he can you know, get the batting average in the, in the hitting up a little bit over the next season or two? Yeah,
1: hitters-wise, it got kind of tough there at the end of the season. I think as far as, like, top prospects are concerned, definitely some under-the-radar guys. Uh, but same with pitching, too. I think you saw a lot of, like, uh, Connor Gillespie, uh, Jake Prezina, like, these kind of guys. A lot of arms from the 2019 draft that are mostly relievers, your Garrett Farmers and um, – uh, Shelton Perkins and Cade Stroud, like a lot of these guys getting their first full season to work in and some some mixed results there. Uh, Easton Lucas, of course, uh, spent, I think, all season down there in Aberdeen. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that uh, John DeVillard trade is going to end up working out in the Orioles' favor, uh, to be totally honest. But uh, for me, the biggest thing, I looked at some numbers earlier today. Um, you know, Aberdeen, yeah, they were three games below five hundred, but they finished second in their division, 12 and a half games back behind Hudson Valley, who's a Yankees affiliate, so that kind of stings a little bit. But they finished kind of slow, two and eight to drop below 500 and a negative nine run differential in the year. Uh, but um, when it comes to when it comes to on the field play, walks. And I know Steve Maleski had an article today when he talked to uh, Buck Britton, the Bowie Bay Sox manager, uh, at, yesterday after there after they clinched the spot in the Double A Northeast Championship Series. And Buck Britton specifically mentioned the walks that kind of sparked that late inning rally. Uh, the Ironbirds finished second in High East with 469 walks fourth in doubles, first in triples. And so while they were in the bottom half of the league in most offensive categories, they actually were pretty good at waiting for their pitches and making good contact, doing damage when we did see them. And I honestly thought about what John Mioli said last week when he made a, a good point about, you know, talking about Jemai Jones and up at the major league level and how, you know, he's it seemed like pitchers found out that he's not swinging on those pitches inside on his hand. So that's where they've been pounding him. And when you're in the minor leagues, you know, you're probably being told you had a great day at the plate uh, because you're not swinging at bad pitches. You're waiting for your pitching and doing damages on your pitches. So it's going to take time to see if this strategy works out. It plays out in the long run, I think, as far as player development goes, but clearly a lot of uh, great progress being made in Aberdeen and the pitchers second fewest walks in uh, high A this year eighth in strikeouts out of 12 teams, so kind of low in the strikeout total, but they did a great job of limiting free passes and had the third lowest whip in high A, so a lot of positives I think you could take away from Aberdeen season. Yeah, I, oh, sorry. Ahead,
2: I was just going to mention that's a good point about the walks because I think that's when you saw Gunnar Henderson really start to walk more often was when he got to Aberdeen, even when he wasn't hidden. so it seems like maybe Aberdeen is the the step in the development where you're, you're going to learn to walk, you're going to learn to wait for your pitch, and then obviously they will continue that growth up up the ladder.
0: Yeah, I agree with you, Bob. And to kind of piggyback off of that, Kyle Stowers is another name that popped into my head as far as like the walks because we started to see him take more walks at Aberdeen. You know, his overall, <clears throat> excuse me, his overall numbers were better at Bowie than they were at Aberdeen, but that trend of him waiting for his pitch and drawing the walks came through. And then he moves to what was really the more hitter-friendly park this year in Bowie, as compared to Aberdeen. And then the power comes right right along with it. So a lot of positive steps were taken at Aberdeen this year by several players. So Stowers, Jordan Westbrook, Gunnar Henderson, JD Mundy's another guy you could throw in that group uh, with the year that he had uh, to hit 11 home runs in that ballpark. It's pretty impressive,
2: very impressive. Yeah. And yeah, it's 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 hard to remember sometimes, but You know, this is a system of development, not necessarily let's see who can put up the best numbers, the best stats. So I think they have something in mind for each guy, you know, each step along the way. And and Aberdeen seems like a a good point for that, especially with that ballpark not being very hitter friendly.
1: Yeah, I mean, and we're going to go into, you know, deeper dives, kind of into season thoughts on specific players, I think, kind of later on throughout the offseason. But, I mean, just looking at the, the pitching when they were down there, like Garrett Stallings, 8-3, and a 4.39 ERA, ton of strikeouts, 12 walks and 80 innings. Uh, Drew Rahm was perfect, 8-0 with a 2.79 ERA, 73 strikeouts, 17 walks and 67 innings. Zach Peek finished the season. We'll talk about him in a minute, too. Brandon Young also finished the season just dominant in high A. And I actually made a note earlier, I think it was over the weekend. Let me find this here. Uh, But I think a lot of this comes down to one, you mentioned Kyle Stowers as well, that falls into this category. One significant change in the organization is this culture change that John Muley touched on last week. And we heard it from Ryan Fuller earlier this season when we met with him at Bowie. And he said how like the instructors and coaches are always talking with players at, at other levels of the organization as well, not just their guys in Bowie or their guys in Aberdeen. Um, and everyone seems to be on the same page. And so like if players get promoted from Aberdeen to Bowie or Delmarva to Aberdeen, like it's not you know the, the coaches aren't like all right, I'm done with you, my job is done. If you fail, like that's on the next side. That's on Ryan Fuller. If you get to Bowie and fail because you did, I did my job in Aberdeen, but. You know, there's there's defined goals and clear paths for all these players to follow. So when they get promoted, uh, it's this really seamless transition. And so they're working with coaches they've been in contact with. Their plan is in place and the organization goals, the coaches goals and the players goals they are all aligned. They're all seem to be transparent. Everyone's working toward those same goals. You know, there's no guarantee that all this is going to work. but. Yeah, you know, I feel like if, if it doesn't, you know, we don't have this tremendous audience that we have anymore, but that's a whole nother story. But the early returns are positive and the growth and development we've seen take place in 2021 far exceed any regressions and disappointments that we saw. And I'll be the first to admit we did see a lot of the big disappointments this year as well. But that's just something that popped in, into my mind when we're talking about all the guys who had great seasons in Aberdeen.
0: Yeah, completely agree. And. We'll move on now to Del Marvo, who I think had probably, they missed the playoffs, but you could argue they may have had the most exciting season outside of Bowie of any team in the Orioles' farm system. They start the year off with a loaded infield of Anthony Servidio, Daryl Herniaise, J.D. Mundy, Gunnar Henderson, Jordan Westberg. Um, little by little, those players either move on or, in the case of Servidio, get hurt. But then after a while, the 2021 draft class arrives and here comes Colton Cowser, Billy Cook, Connor Norby, John Rhodes, Reed Trimble, and Kobe Mayo, who I think exceeded even some of the loftiest expectations for him this year by just flat out breaking between the Florida Complex League and Del Marva. It was not just all about the hitting, though, because some of the guys that we talked about a little bit ago in Brandon Young and Zach Peak, actually started their success at Delmarva this year before going to Aberdeen. And before the season started, one of the biggest question marks that the three of us had looking throughout the whole farm system was Delmarva's pitching staff. Because there was a lot of 2019 draftees, guys that had come over in trades from the Angels that we just didn't have a lot of information on. And in the end, it ended up being one of the stronger points, I think, in the farm system when you look at how Delmarva pitched throughout the year and how some of those players performed when they got there before they moved up.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I don't think we saw guys like Noah DeNoyer and Houston Roth, you know, coming out. And Houston Roth has struggled a little bit at the end of the year, but these guys just coming out and shoving it the whole year. And Brandon Young, you know, their undrafted free agent signing, pitched great. Gene Pinto came up and became our everybody's favorite player. Uh, Zach Peake, he actually pitched better in High than he did in Del Marva, at least pure numbers uh, wise. But, uh, he, you know, it's just all these guys that we didn't expect a ton from. And they came out and they put themselves on the radar, even if it's just as a future reliever, potentially at the major league level, it was still fun to see.
1: Yeah, just more seamless transitions for those guys from the FCL to Delmarva. Um, you know, 68-52 record, fourth best record in low A-East, but second best run differential. They pouted on the runs when they got hot. Uh, third in home runs. I know they said a lot of you know Delmarva team-specific records this year in like 30 or 40 fewer games this year. Uh, and another big takeaway was same thing the walks. They finished second in walks, 573 walks on the year. Uh, top four in the league in batting average, on-base percentage, and OPS. And you mentioned the pitching as well as they did second lowest ERA in the low A division that they were in. So I mean, you just saw. The biggest thing for me and when I watched Marva as the season closed, I wish a lot of those guys would have been promoted to high A and I'm typically very slow. Like I will sit back and say, Colton Couser stay in the FCL for the rest of this year. Like I'm fine with that. Like that's normally who, what kind of person I am when I look at this, but I'm here thinking Colton Couser should have been like up and buoy right now for this, for this playoff push. <laughs> but clearly a lot of great hitting uh, instruction and pitching instruction going on in Delmarva and, uh, you saw Noah Denoyer undrafted after forty rounds in 2019. He's pitching better in high as well. You mentioned Zach peak pitching better in high a uh, Del Marva did a fantastic job of preparing guys for high a ball and putting themselves in a good position to succeed and so you're not seeing i mean how many guys can you think of off the top of your head that once they got promoted other than Gunner to you know high a for a little bit there, how many of those guys really struggled this year when they got up to Aberdeen from Del Marva?
2: Ignacio Feliz. Uh, we, we weren't going to mention him anymore.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that, that one does hurt. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's 2 You're talking about a minor league rule five guy and then Gunnar Henderson, who eventually got promoted to Bowie. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's fantastic development. I, I don't think we can stress that enough. Again, long-term, is all this going to work out? We don't know yet, but baby steps. And right now they're conquering those baby steps.
2: And Griffin McLarty also pitched better mm-hmm. in high A than he did in low A. And another thing that I loved about the Marva this year is you got to see a bunch of, of guys not just come out of nowhere, like the 2021 draftees and guys like T.T. Bowens, but guys who we thought long and in, in dead in this organization, like Gene Carmona, or a guy coming back from brutal injuries and really just grinding his way back like Lamar Sparks and putting up impressive numbers and earning promotions to the next level, not just being handed to them on a silver platter. So that was pretty cool to see.
0: Yeah, that definitely was a really cool part of Delmarva's season, being able to see guys like Carmona and Sparks get back on the field. The one thing I find interesting with Delmarva is that they finished with the second fewest strikeouts in low A East. Um, and you hear a lot about how the Orioles kind of have this favoritism towards these swing and miss type players. Yet you look at some of the guys in Delmarva, like Daryl Hernaiz, and Hernaiz didn't walk. I could do a whole show trying to pick apart why that happened this year. But the guy never struck out. Uh, Colton Cowser never strikes out. Uh, Connor Norby really didn't strike out either. So you saw a lot of guys go there that I think hit, fit a different mold that the Orioles were developing, which is very contact-oriented. Uh, some power, but that's not the main focus, and where maybe the system's a little more balanced than it's given credit for in that respect.
1: Yeah, I'm looking here, and the only guy who struck out more than 100 times was Mason Janvrin And I, yeah, I mean, he arguably has the top speed, the most elite speed in the organization, but I mean mason jammer probably not going to make it above you know aberdeen level so i mean that's that's okay but the, the big power hitters that's what surprised me the most guys like christopher cesspitus and tt T. bowens you miss, mentioned mentioned jd mundy these guys if i'm being completely honest like i love tt T. bowens coming up as a udfa we saw the videos these just monster home runs he hit at central connecticut state i think he came out of college from and i was very wary of what like those three guys in specific would be able to produce even in the Delmarva level I thought 220-230 batting averages an extreme amount of strikeouts and yeah they're going to crush baseballs but if you hit 15 home runs and you're hitting 210 with 80 strikeouts in 50 games like that's that's not going to play at high A Uh, but all three of those guys are in double A or high A and all finished the season Monday finished season on the I.L. but Cespedes and Bones are hitting even better in high A right now Uh, so that was a one of the biggest, most pleasant surprises for me was the power hitters not striking out as much as I thought they would.
2: Even Kobe Mayo, who's 19 years old in low A, only struck out 26 times in a 106 at bats with 16 walks. So or close to a 20% strikeout rate for a 19-year-old slugger. That's pretty darn impressive. Can't wait to watch him hit bombs in Aberdeen next year.
0: That That's very good, especially for someone where I think that overall hit tool was the big question mark coming into the season. For him to not strike out that much is really impressive. I want to bring up another point too, and I think Delmarva does kind of tie into this, particularly with a guy like T.T. Bowens. I thought across the board, the Orioles farm system was much stronger at first base uh, this year than what I was expecting, because it seemed like when you looked at the depth chart coming into the year, it was a really top heavy position. A lot of guys in the majors that could play first base and hit for power. Some guys at triple A, they could play first base and hit for power. And then just one question mark after the other where guy who didn't have much of a track record, you didn't know what to expect, um, really at every level of the system once you got beyond that. But then you saw Mundy, Dasbach, T.T. Bowens, even Patrick Dorian playing a little bit at first this year, put up big numbers, and that was a surprise to me.
2: Yeah, Toby Welk too. But yeah, it's J.D. Mundy, T.T. Bowens, and uh, Jacob Teeter even comes in and immediately is like breaking. Yeah, never seen anything like it in the Orioles organization from pretty much top to bottom now. You know, it might not be future major leaguers. It's hard to, you know, start your minor league career as a first baseman and make it all the way through. It's a tough position to do that. You have to really rake. But even J.C. Ascara had a pretty good year. So just a great year for first baseman in the Baltimore Orioles organization from Trey Mancini and Ryan Castle, all the way down to Jacob Teeter.
1: Yeah, I remember two years ago, three years ago. I mean, they were converting Preston Palmero to first base, and I actually really liked Preston Palmero when he came up as a second baseman in the lower levels of the minor leagues. Then they moved this guy who was like, I don't even think he was six feet tall. If he was, if he was listed at six feet, I think they're lying. Uh, him trying to play first base, and he didn't really have much power. And now you've got all these guys who are just mashers at first base, and they play pretty good defense. Jacob Teeter plays a good defense over at first base. Um, but no one mentioned, like, the, the guy at the top of the list. I mean, Ryan Ripken had a couple of key hits for Norfolk, guys. I mean, that swing is is something. Uh, I'll say. I'll just leave it at that. It's something.
2: I want to just say <laughs> he had a better season than you, Snell Diaz. Boom.
1: You know what? Actually, um, I'm going to cry now because I think that <laughs> might be an accurate statement. It like, is an accurate statement. I saw honest. that this morning. <laughs> That is a fairly accurate statement, and I think if anyone's listening right now, um, if you cringe,
2: that's rightfully so.
0: Now that we've talked about that, can we talk about two Florida <laughs> Complex League teams that finish under five hundred? Absolutely. <laughs> sure. Okay. So, Florida, uh, as I just mentioned, um, Florida Complex League Orioles. Both teams finish below five hundred. Uh, Orioles black goes eighteen and twenty-eight. Orioles orange goes eleven and thirty-four. Win-loss records for neither team was great. Um, but still, a ton of talent went through the Florida Complex League this year. Kobe Mayo was really the big one out of the gate. Uh, you obviously had a lot of the 2021 draft picks start out at the Florida Complex League before making their way to Delmarva. But there was more to it than that. We saw Sone break out and I think become one of those guys now that you feel like it's knocking on the door of the top 30. Steven Acevedo put together a nice year. We finally got to see Luis Gonzalez and Luis Ortiz stateside, along with a few other notable prospects this year. And I think really, if you look at the Florida Complex League top to bottom, it was a reminder of the fact that the Orioles are actually building something of a nucleus of talent from the Dominican Republic and from Latin American countries because we haven't seen it before. But now between some of the trades that were made uh, under Mike Elias and some of the signings they've made, we're seeing that a little bit more. And... Although the Dominican Summer League was really where I think we had our attention focused focus on guys like Michael Hernandez and Samuel Basayo, um, We saw a lot of the Florida Complex League as well.
2: Yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead, Nick.
1: I was going to say, if Eric's in here, uh, jump in and I see the comment he is here. Um, shout out to him for the videos. I mean, he's the eyes for Orioles fans down there in Sarasota, so we could actually see these guys. And I, I think – and yeah, Eric, correct me if I'm wrong, if you're listening um, – but I believe at the beginning of the year when the season started, at least on one of the teams, whichever one Kobe Mayo was on, uh, I believe he was the only non-international player on the roster. And so I think that does speak volumes. We'll see if the talent pans out. There's certainly a lot of flashes of that talent so far. But uh, just the fact that Kobe Mayo was one of the very few, uh, you know, domestic prospects that the world's had on those rosters uh, is, is pretty promising. You know, it's, it's instructional ball. And Eric mentioned that a lot when he was on our show and go back and listen to that episode for updates on a a lot of these guys, Um, you know, and I guess it's really young. A lot of these guys are still 18, 19 years old. And I believe Kyle Glazer made this statement when he was on the show about these are the kind of guys that are probably going to get hurt the most uh, with having 2020 wiped out. And then this year, when you look at some of the numbers, a lot of these guys in the FCL only saw like 35 or 40 games worth of action. So Still not a whole lot this year. So hopefully the classroom instruction was valuable and, uh, you know, the drill work was valuable and all the behind the scenes work was positive. And we see standouts like Steven Acevedo, Luis Gonzalez, Isaac De Leon, um Moises Ramirez was a name that I know we saw a lot of on videos and box scores and Rowe were in hell. Uh, hopefully we see all these guys start in Marva next year and they can finally get 100 plus games under their belt. We can learn a lot more.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I don't know how important record is in general in the minor leagues, but especially in the FCL, I'm, you know, I don't know how meaningful it is, but there's still plenty of talent that we have not really seen much of in the FCL for the Orioles. You know, we didn't even mention Isaac DeLeon. I don't think uh, he had a pretty great season. And I won't forget one of my favorite days of the year following the minor leagues this season was that first couple of games when all the 2021 draft picks started playing. And it was just like I don't know, every single person that came up to plate, it was like Eric Eric Birdland was 100% of my Twitter feed that day. It was just, it was great. I loved to watch it. And then they went up and did the same thing in Delmarva. So, win or loss, I had a lot of fun following the FCL this year.
0: Yeah, DeLeon is actually a guy that I'm glad you mentioned, Bob. That was a player the Orioles acquired from Miami Marlins in 2020 in exchange for Richard Blyer. 19 years old, put together a very good season, 145 at-bats at the Florida Complex League this year, hit 276 with a 740 OPS, currently listed at 6'2", 170 pounds. If you listen to um, some of our episodes around the time the FCL started, we know that Joe, Tre- Joe Trezza had written a good piece about De Leon, talking about his size a little bit and the question of whether he'll move off a shortstop, which is a long way down the line from being answered. But early returns on him this season were very positive.
2: Yeah, I know Eric was pretty pretty positive on his footwork and smoothness at the position, at least at his age. Obviously, he could still grow out of it.
1: Yeah, and I think, too, a lot of these guys are probably going to end up, you know, they still got half a season of instruction down there. I'm sure they're going. They're already down there in Sarasota, so I'm sure when instructional camp starts in you know, a couple of weeks, they'll all be down there as well playing games. So, you know, the work doesn't stop just because the season's over. It's just beginning for these kids. And most of them aren't even going to be 20 yet, or barely 20. Uh, when they get into Delmarva next year. So you have this large group of college outfielders that, you know, Orioles drafted, and half the draft is outfielders. So those guys are going to move quickly. Those are the guys you're going to see fill the Aberdeen roster next year. Maybe uh, a Kowser slips in at Bowie to start the year, hopefully. Uh, But a lot of these guys in the FCL, they're going to have, if it takes them all year to work things out in Delmarva, like that's fine because they're still going to be 20 years old next year. So very, very young as well.
2: And I'm still excited to see Elio Prado play. Uh, didn't get the chance to make his FCL. I don't, actually, he might have played FCL when they first traded for him. Or maybe it was DSL. I don't know. But we didn't get a chance to, get, to see him this year. So looking forward to – I'm sure he'll be back in FCL just to get his feet wet next year. Hopefully he can rise up fast.
0: So we just talked about the Florida Complex League and Marva and didn't really talk about Gene Pinto much. And Pinto is not on our list for the final segment of the episode. So I kind of thought that I would check in because as you've been listening to the show since the start of July, you know, it's pretty much become a Dean Pinto watch around here. Uh, this season, the young right-hander went two and two over 66 and two thirds innings pitched with a 2.3 ERA striking out 84, walking 17. That included a 46 and two thirds innings run at Del Marva, where he walked just 13 against 56 strikeouts his last outing of the year was not great but when your season is that good who really cares um and as a reminder pinto was sort of the guy regarded as the throw-in the jose iglesias trade over the offseason that also brought garrett stallings over he puts together this really impressive year at age 20 i have to think right now is in a position to start 2022 at aberdeen as a 21 year old which is impressive uh, especially for a guy with such little experience in pro ball. So any words on Gene Pinto's season from either of you?
2: Well, you know, he had a pretty disappointing start or not even start. He even he couldn't even start. He was so bad. He was a reliever. No, I'm still in the Pinto bandwagon. I, I can't wait to go watch him start opening day for the Ironbirds next season. And uh, just like Drew Jerome, get up to Bowie by midseason and be a top 10 prospect in this organization.
1: I mean, just no innings, 12 innings in 2019. That was it. That's all he's thrown coming into this season. So, um, looking at his Del Marva numbers, trying to get him to look here. My computer's being weird. Uh, He struck out 31% of hitters he faced just in Del Marva. We're not even looking at the Florida complexity numbers. Only a 7% walk rate, huge ground ball numbers, like 54, 55%. He only allowed one home run in 46 and two thirds innings. And I know that's lower level ball, but still, that's impressive. A .90 whip. I mean, the kid works so fast, keeps the ball down. Guys can't square him up. Uh, full of energy out there, too. And I think we need a 1,000 Gene Pintos. If every pitcher pitched like Gene Pinto, baseball would be such an amazing sport to watch. Um, but it's he's. Just, I think he's a really special talent. And, you know, we've had someone, Kyle Glazer didn't seem very high on him. I think his reports were outdated. Uh, I think that Gene Pinto is a rising star in this system. And like you mentioned, he's probably going to be the opening day starter in Aberdeen next year at 20 years old still uh, and could be another fast riser. And even if you move him to the bullpen and he has to do that and he has to fill that role, I think he's going to be a powerful – he can be a very powerful late-inning arm at the, at the next level. So,
2: And you didn't even mention the fact that it seems like even when he goes five, six innings, he only throws like 60 pitches. So. For anyone, it's like, how come these pitchers these days can't go past six innings? Well, maybe Pinto could be that guy to go seven every time out because he just throws strikes, pounds his own, works fast. So he he's a hero.
0: Yeah, so Pinto certainly put together a really remarkable season. And if you didn't hear a player's name mentioned or you didn't hear a particular part of the season mentioned uh, in this sort of recap that we did, don't worry because we have a whole off season in front of us. And unlike last offseason, we're going to be recording weekly throughout this offseason. So we'll have a lot of time to get to individual players, uh, talk a little bit more about these teams. But for now, this was kind of the broad overview of the seasons in the Florida Complex League, Delmarva and Aberdeen. And when they wrap up completely, we'll take a closer look at Norfolk, Bowie and the two Dominican Summer League teams. Um, And if you're a patron, make it daily because we're going to talk
2: about a single player every single day over the off season. So sign up for patron and you can get a
0: letter of that. Exactly. So another incentive to sign up that and a coffee mug. Um, so we'll now get into um, kind of a different topic for us, which is trading players at some point, you know, trading from the farm system to get major league talent. We know that it's part of a rebuild. It's coming at some point. The question is when, Um, And we do have a listener question that I want to get to in a moment. But first, I'll start off with um, our friends over at the warehouse, uh, part of Baltimore Sports and Life Radio here, had a conversation on their most recent episode about this topic. And Stephen Loftus, who is our long, you know, as our listeners know, resident draft expert, very smart guy here at Baltimore Sports and Life, brought up two names that I thought were interesting as possible offseason trade targets for the Orioles that would improve the Major League Club and probably not require giving up more than a mid-tier prospect. Marlon's third baseman, Brian Anderson, who is currently on the 60-day IL, and Joey Wendell of the Tampa Bay Rays. Now, if you're asking yourself, who is Joey Wendell? The answer is, he's one of those typical Rays players that plays like nine positions on the field. You didn't hear of him five minutes ago, and now he's three for four against your team. So that's a way to describe Wendell in a nutshell, but... Those are two names that he brought up. We've kind of speculated our own names here as far as maybe they go out and they sign a Kyle Seeger or, or an Eduardo Escobar. Um, I do think regardless, a third base needs to be a priority this offseason uh, in some way, shape, or form. But I'll start with Nick on this topic. Do you think that this is an offseason where we see maybe some prospects move, not the top guys, but – some guys from the minor league system move to improve this major league roster.
1: Not this, not this offseason, I don't think. Um, of course, we do realize that that time is coming. I kind of can't wait. You know, I love following these minor league guys and getting to know them has been awesome. Interacting with them this year and, and watching them play on a nightly basis. But I know the time is coming. I hope, say, I hope the time is coming where we turn into the San Diego Padres the last two years where if we trade all these guys and end up getting the you the Darvish, the Michael Clevengers, the, the, I don't even know who else the Padres traded for. They traded their entire farm system and acquired half a new major league roster but still kept McKenzie Gore, CJ Abrams, Luis Camposano, they so still have to keep their top guys. Um, you know, I'm hoping that day comes very, very soon. And maybe like Vivek says, maybe it is one year away. I hope that is the case. Uh, but I don't think it's this offseason. I do, though, think that maybe – And we're going to talk about this on an episode soon an episode that i think all three of us are very much looking forward to there's a very very long list of rule five eligible guys uh coming up and that the order is gonna have to make decisions on so i mean maybe if you think about moving those guys if someone's really high on blaine knight and you just don't think there's enough room to protect blaine knight which i know you look this major league roster that sounds crazy that there's not going to be any room to protect anybody but it's a very long list and so if you think maybe you know blaine knight if we leave him out there at the Rule five draft he's going to be selected if another team's high on him, we can maybe move him. You know, that's an example I can think of right there. But, you know, the, these top guys are still another year away of finding out more about them and what exactly their role at the major level is going to be. So if this isn't also to trade those top guys. Uh, but I think definitely some of these Rule 5 eligible guys, maybe keep an eye on them as possible moves.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I could maybe see a Blaine Knight for Joey Wendell type trade. I think the the Rays could probably do some magic with Blaine. Uh, yeah, Joey Wendell, that is an interesting guy. He's got like a mid-750s OPS for a guy that can play any position all over the infield, 31 years old. But yeah, I do think we're like a year away from really doing something like that, going all in at least on a, a massive upgrade. And it's so hard to predict right now because all the guys <laughs> that are towards the top of our our prospect rankings are guys that I want to see at least you know another season of development under our watch, see where we go. And then the guys like Houston El Diaz and and Adam Halls who have fallen off our radar. I'm sure they've fallen off the other team's radars as well. So one guy I had in mind, kind of similar to a Joey Wendell type, and it actually reminds me of the JJ Hardy trade from back in the day, is Paul DeYoung for the St. Louis Cardinals. He's you know power hidden, good defensive shortstop who is coming off of back to back disappointing seasons. Right now he's batting. 197 with the 673 OPS, but he's got power. He's got 17 home runs, and he's only 28 years old, and he is under contract for two more years and then two team options after that. So if that's a guy they like, that could definitely be something that maybe it wouldn't take too much to get a hold of him. I don't know what you guys think about that.
1: My response, I said before the show, like I haven't looked at a box score this year at the major level. I haven't watched a game. Like I'm so out of the loop. And so I feel like my response is going to be like, pretty much anything's going to be an upgrade. Uh, yeah, I like Paul DeYoung. looking at his numbers now. I like that power for sure. 17 home runs this year and only 103 games. Um, I think guys like that could be good targets. They're going to be an improvement. They're going to be cheap. Uh, it's not going to be an issue trading away a mid-level prospect for someone like that who's going to make the major league roster better until a Jordan Westberg or Gunnar Henderson steps up and maybe they take over that third base role. Uh, but, I mean, those are definitely good options. And it's definitely, when you're looking at other names, positional versatility, I think is still going to be the name of the game. So if they can play more than one position as well, for sure, you know, that guy's going to be on Michael Ash radar.
0: Yeah. Cause that's kind of the, the trend that the Orioles have taken so far as their infielders is they are trying to make these guys more versatile. So a guy like a day young or uh Wendell would fit that mold a little bit more because they can play multiple spots. I think that if you are going to trade, you need to go after a guy like that, who is not necessarily going to be, you know, your third baseman for the next five years or whatever infield position you're bringing him into play. But if he makes you better for the next year or two, while you're waiting for a Gunnar Henderson or a Jordan Westberg or a Joey Ortiz or whoever uh, to get to the major leagues, that's better than having to go to the bottom of the free agent class at those positions every offseason and bring guys in. And it kind of takes us back to something John Mioli said last week when he was on, which is that, maybe the financial flexibility the Orioles have allows them to do things like go get a better version of Matt Harvey, which you know basically means that you can pay a little bit more to get a pitcher that's going to do better than what Pat Harvey did this year. And, again, I know that's a low bar. but still, How is that possible? Come on. <laughs> but still, we got, you know, we got to move forward here somehow. One thing I really want the Orioles to do this offseason, and I thought that they were on this track last offseason, and it really didn't work. That infield defense has to get better, uh, especially second and third. I think that Ramon Arias is going to be capable where you put him, you know, wherever you want to put him. I think Ryan Malcastle's is getting better at first base. We know that Adley Rutschman will make the catcher's position better the second he arrives. When Austin Hayes and Cedric Mullins are out there, that's two thirds of a great outfield. If Anthony Santander is back next year and healthy, you've got a really good defensive outfield but the infield defense has to get better. And that's, I have a lot of reservations because of Anderson's injury. He has a shoulder problem right now. But one thing I will say in his favor is that when he's been healthy, he's generally rated as a good defender. And in 2019, I think he had 20 homers at what's generally regarded as a pitcher's park down in Miami. So you bring him here, probably hits 260. but if he gets you good defense, 25 homers, and he does that for the next two years while you're waiting for someone else to take over third, I would be okay giving up a mid-level prospect for that.
2: Yeah, and I think ideally we need two infielders. I think Urias and Mateo could split or combine for one of the three, second, short, and third, and then say you trade for a Paul DeYoung, a Joey Wendell, and then you sign Eduardo Escobar, or you trade for Brian Anderson. I think that's what ideally we would need, like two guys on a one- or two-year deal type of thing while you wait for Westbergs and the infield depths like you said to come up. But yeah, Brian Anderson as long as that's a minor injury and and he can get healthy or maybe that even lowers his price tag, it's not a bad bad angle. Or you keep Calvin Gutierrez, Calvin <laughs> Gutierrez who can't hit his way out of a paper bag but he plays great defense.
1: Yeah, I think the issue though is just that like Calvin Gutierrez makes some fantastic plays. He did it in Norfolk, you know, watching him, watching him there. And he's doing it at the major league level as well. But you look at Norfolk's roster right now. Well, go even lower. Look at Bowie's roster. Like, yeah, there's Patrick Dorian. And I know a lot of there have been some people who you know have said maybe the defense isn't all that great. I think it's better than what some people have said it is. Uh, but as far as like being an everyday major league third baseman, I don't I don't know. Uh, and he didn't play any at AAA this year. So we know Michael Ice likes to you know, make your stop at each level. Um, but looking at Norfolk, like there's really no one that's. I think gonna step up and take one of those starting spots, infield spots next year. Like there's the Jamai Jones question, which I think could be a still a whole podcast in and of itself, or people are just tired of talking about Jemai Jones and we can move on. But Mason McCoy would improve the defense, but he can't hit very well. Uh Ryland Bannon can improve the defense, I think, if you put him at second base, but he hasn't hit very well this year. JC Ascara is strictly a first base uh, prospect. And so there's really no one else on that infield that's coming next year. Two years from now, yes. Three years from now, for sure. But next year, no. So I do agree. You're going to have to get two infielders this year and, and do something.
0: Yeah, I mean, your best case scenario, I think, out of the farm system is either that Jemai Jones could figure it out to plate, and he takes over at second base at some point. And I had mixed reaction to his defense during his time in the major leagues. I think he has good reins, but it doesn't necessarily translate into him being a great defensive second baseman. Um, so he needs a lot of work. But then Taron Vavra, you know, that's a guy that I could see in the mix if he's healthy. He's, You know, if with better health next year, if he goes to Norfolk and does what Taryn Vavra does, which is just flat-out hit, never strike out, get on base, play solid defense, he could be the second baseman by the All-Star break. But he's going to need time at Norfolk. He's not going to be ready on opening day to play in the major leagues. I think he's going to need good time down in the minors next year.
2: Yeah, I agree. I could see. Oh, sorry, Nick. I could see Taron Vavra starting in AAA and then maybe forcing his way up eventually. But I still say you get two guys in here and then you just trade one of them when the time comes, because, I mean, I don't think Elias is going to rush these guys up. I think he wants to get them perfectly seasoned. He seems to like to get them, you know, ready to contribute as soon as they come up.
1: Yeah. I forgot about Bavra, but that's because of the injuries and hopefully he can make it to the Arizona fall league in a couple of weeks and get some more at bats. Um, yeah. Vivek is asking, is there an Arizona fall league? There is, uh, I've seen some trickling of some names from other teams being announced, uh, unofficially, but nothing from the Orioles yet, which I'm sure they're going to keep that very under wraps as much as maybe we can start trying to pry a little bit. I know we got some listeners. that. uh, well, no, more. Uh, we'll start prying here hopefully soon. Uh, but, yeah, I forgot about Vavra. Hopefully he gets down there and gets more bats. But, yeah, he didn't really play. get to play that much. Joey Ortiz got hurt, missed pretty much the whole season. He could have been an option, I think, next year. But that injury set him back. And the only other name I guess you could look at is Caden Grenier. But, again, he also doesn't hit the ball very well, at least consistently. And we know the strikeouts are a big issue there. While he would be the best defender on that Orioles infield right now, Again, it's an issue with so many other guys. Like I just mentioned, it's hitting is the issue.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a fair point because if they had – you know, if making the infield defense had been the number one priority, don't worry if they hit 200. Mason McCoy, Richie Martin um, would have had substantial time in the major leagues this year. Caden Grenier probably would have gotten there. But, yeah, I think that they couldn't quite find that balance of get a guy with a good glove – who can be a replacement-level bat. They just couldn't find that option out there. Yomar Sanchez was not that guy, obviously. Freddie Galvis was that guy until he got hurt and then traded. Um, so they, it's something that I think they have to do. I, don't, I admit there's not an easy way to do it, but I think that if you're going to have a lot of young pitchers next year, you need that infield defense to be better.
2: And maybe this is crazy, but I feel like if Joey Ortiz didn't get hurt, maybe he starts the 2022 season as a Baltimore Oriole at the major league level, or at least knocking on the door, triple a, not too far behind. Just defensively alone. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I don't think that's crazy at all. I mean, he, with the way that he was hitting um, and we've known for years, how good his defense is the way that he was hitting when he got hurt. I think that's very possible. So Vivek asked this question. Would you welcome Freddie Galvis or Jose Iglesias again for shortstop and then Escobar for third base? So I guess referring to Eduardo Escobar.
2: I wouldn't hate it. I mean, I think I'd prefer a Glacius over Galvis in that scenario, especially if their prices are similar, but I, I wouldn't hate that at all.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm fine with, I'll, I'd probably prefer Escobar maybe because I feel like not looking at the numbers in front of me, I feel like offensively it provides more uh, if I'm not mistaken. 28 um, her runs this year. There you go. Perfect. Um, so yeah, I'll take that uh, for sure. Um, Galvis, I'd probably, like, if I were to rank him, I'd say Escobar 1, like Iglesias 2. Uh, the defense was pretty good, and we didn't really get to see him play shortstop a whole lot because of his injury uh, when he was here, so, and if he can get us another um, Gene Pinto-type player, then bring those Iglesias back for sure. Or another name, too. I, I think I heard this one out there. I don't know if, I don't know what he's done this year. He might be pretty much on the way out the door, but, in, or what his contract situation is, but in Angleton Simmons, I don't know if, if he's still out there or available, but I don't think I've heard a lot of him offensively. I think he's been kind of struggling, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned him, Nick. I was just looking at his contract status the other day. He's having a bad year at the plate, and he's actually been kind of trending downward for the last few years. But the defense yeah. still rates well, and he's on a one-year deal with the Twins right now. So maybe that is an option.
1: Could be. I feel like he accepted more money last year, too, probably still – team's still banking on that turnaround. And so maybe another down year at the plate, maybe you can get them for like super cheap and that could be an option as well. But if you go that route, then you better be putting that money in the pitching staff, which I know is a whole podcast episode in of itself.
0: It's a whole month of podcast episodes. <laughs> True, <laughs> we, could, we could dive really deep on that. So building off of this topic, we'll bring up a listener question that we got from our uh, patron group which is which players from our top 50 will be trade candidates when the Orioles are ready to buy instead of sell. I have my own thoughts about this and, but I'll let Bob or Nick start first before I chime in.
2: I had such a hard time with this question just because it's hard to say, okay, a year from now when I think we'll be ready to do something like this, who's going to be, you know, it's, it's tough. I'm guessing it could be one of the 2021 draftees that is like eight outfielders. So Maybe a John Rhodes or a Reed Trimble type, but I hate to say it, maybe Kyle Stowers has enough helium and with his strikeout numbers, maybe that's and especially the way they like emphasized not striking out in this year's draft and at the lower levels, maybe that's someone that they would be willing to let go in the right deal, but I, I hope not. Cause I really like following him, but I don't know. What do you guys think?
1: Uh, I mean, it is a tough question. I think it's, question better suited or better suited to answer this probably next year when rodriguez and rutchman are up and i think westberg and henderson and deal hall are close to the majors and we see what the orioles are going to do this offseason as far as trades and free agents but i mean i guess just looking at our list you know uh, i think joey ortiz could end up being one of those options maybe i know we just talked about him being a potential starter with the orioles but i think if you look at jordan westberg Gunnar henderson joey ortiz those three guys like one of them could be an option that you move and I hope it's not Gunnar Henderson. I'm hoping he is the starter of the future for many, many years, but uh, you know, hopefully one of, one of those guys isn't going to pan out. Uh, Two of those guys may not pan out, but I know MLB pipeline, I think did a piece of one prospect that could be traded from each team. And they listed Jordan Westberg as their option, but Ortiz is an elite defender. And so if you like what Westberg and Henderson are doing, Ortiz brings value. Uh, And I was also thinking like some of these younger catchers, maybe like, I know Sammy Basalo and Creed Willems, they're very, very young. They're projectable. They're power hitters. They probably don't project as catchers as you move them up the ranks, but still, I mean, maybe they could be attractive pieces to throw into a deal uh, to land you some major league pitching. Um, you know, I would hate to trade away all these young guys, but if you're infield core, if you can find that between Henderson, Westberg, and some other guys, then even a, a Michael Hernandez becomes expendable. I know I don't want to deal away those young international talents either right now, but I mean, that's why we're signing them. That's why we're building this pipeline is to have tradable assets as well. And so those guys, I'm looking probably more at the younger guys because they're going to have the most value. But the guys at the upper levels right now, they've got to hit. Some of these guys have to start hitting. Uh, Otherwise, then we're, we're going off the rails a little bit.
2: And the idea of raising the floor and building this depth is to eventually trade from it and still be fine, you know, everywhere and have your bases covered, so... Yeah, it's so hard to tell. I think in a year or two, with all these outfielders, all these infielders slash shortstops, it could be it could be anyone. Anthony Servidio, maybe he bounces back big time next year. But we already have Ortiz, et cetera, et cetera, and then he becomes tradable. So too early to tell, I think. But this it's is a podcast, ex- so let's talk about it anyway. <laughs> yeah,
1: I was gonna say it's exciting though because like let's say Westberg, he seems like a pretty safe bet if we're going to bet on these guys hitting into the next level he seems to, so if you've got westbury you got malcastle at first base you've got henderson at shortstop or third base you've got some free agent maybe thrown in there michael hernandez is still down there in high a maybe now and he's raking in two years and he looks like a fantastic prospect uh everyone seems to be super high on him even outside the organization seems to be high on him that's a guy who can land you a solid major league starting pitcher and you're you're not hurt at all because you still got some other guys coming up through the system
2: so it and is hopefully, to think about. hopefully you signed other guys like Anderson, Taylor Santos and blah, blah, blah to uh, pick up the slack. If you happen to trade one of them.
0: Yeah. I feel like in the here and now, the easiest way to answer the question is look at where there's the most depth in the system and look at where there are guys that are possibly four years away from the big leagues at this point. And the younger they are, the further away they are from the majors, probably the more likely they are to be traded. Um, I think that you know if you look back at the discussion we just had about off-season trade targets, I don't know that any of the players we mentioned would require any player above, say, 20th in the farm system to bring in. number may even be lower than that. So when you start to look ahead, though, when the Orioles really are contending, it's probably going to be a guy that right now is on the lower end of that list, but that by the time the Orioles are ready to pull the trigger on a big move to make a trade, is in the top 10 or top 15. Um, so I would say that as, as a rule for right now, that's where I would look is down lower in the system where you have players that are four or five years away and there are a lot of prospects in front of them. There's a lot of depth at that position already. So we know, for instance, the Orioles have coveted center fielders in the last few years. That's a deep position. Second base is a deep position. Shortstop stop is a deep position. So the up the middle spots right now, even catchers deep. So the up the middle spots right now are deep. That would probably be a good place to start. But I think that we're probably a year or two away from really knowing the answer to that question. Yeah.
2: And the exciting thing is, we're pretty
0: deep everywhere, honestly.
1: Yeah. I was just looking at that list, too. As you mentioned, guys at the bottom of the list. I mean, even an Anthony Servidio, <clears throat> I mean, way down there, I know his season was cut very short this year, but that's a guy who coming out of the draft evaluator said that glove is pretty much major league ready right now. And so like teams are going to find that attractive, and that's going to add value. Uh, and so there are definitely pieces they can move right now, I think. But next year, I think, is the year that you really start paying attention. And then we start set, probably having to say some goodbyes to some guys we've really fallen in love with. But that's okay, yeah. because uh, this major league roster's going to get better.
2: Look, uh, we all love him. But Michel Deson, with all the, you know, fast riser, college outfielders that we have, mm-hmm. is he a guy that could be expendable in a year? I hope not. No, no, don't. (laughs) (laughs) I will not hear that slander.
0: (laughs) So we will now move on to our final segment of the show where we talk about a player outside of our top 30. And it could be a good week. Uh, Well, no, but in this case, it's just a good season because the season's over for most teams. Um, So this week what we're going to do is mix it up a bit and each of us pick two. We picked a position player and a pitcher that we wanted to discuss in the final segment. And I'll start with Bob, who went towards the upper levels of the system for his picks.
2: Yeah, really, I lean towards guys who ended the year strong. And obviously, Tyler Nevin, who is my position player, he's still going. He's two more weeks left in the season, but just wanted to mention over his last 15 days of play, he's batting 311 with a 992 OPS. And it seems like he's had a pretty rough year, especially in the middle there, but looking at his numbers, he had the lowest batting average for balls on play in his career at just 251. He's, he doesn't strike out much, just right around 20%, which these days is, is not bad at all, and he's got like a 9% walk rate, which is solid, so I still think there's a little bit of promise there, and I think he kind of saved a season a little bit over the last few weeks, and hopefully he can keep that going into the next couple weeks.
1: Yeah. It's, it was really good to see him in the season on a hot streak and there's still 10 games left. So uh, still more time for him, but the power is there. You mentioned those numbers. Uh, I pointed out the BABIP as well when I was looking at this stuff. So it's not like Ryland Bannon BABIP, which I think was like barely cracking a hundred a couple minutes ago. So you're still looking at like a, let's say best case scenario, a 240, 250 hitter probably for Nevin. Um, The defense He's competent at a lot of his positions, plays first, third, left, right. He's competent for like a week or two, and then he, he'll go on a stretch. He makes some plays that are just like so extremely frustrating. Uh, so the defense is a big question mark, but he adds value with that positional versatility. So it's going to be interesting to see. I thought maybe if Mancini was going to be done for the year, maybe we saw Tyler Nevin come up, finish the year at Baltimore. But, yeah, I think there's – I'd like to see him up win a spot next year or next year's Major League roster to fill out a couple of positions as depth, and, and let's see what you got. And if you don't have it by the all-star break, then, you know, they're still tearing down to someone in the system to win that trade.
0: Yep. Yeah, there, you know, I think that depending on what happens in the major league roster over the offseason, there is probably room for Nevin because he's a guy that can play both infield and outfield corners. And the thing that Bob touched on is his strikeout and walk rates. He's really been that hitter his whole career, draws a lot of walks, doesn't strike out a ton. And the fact that he hasn't completely strayed from that in the middle of a really up-and-down year at Norfolk is an encouraging sign for me. The question mark that I think we've had with Nevin for a while is, is he going to hit for enough power to be at one of those spots every day? But you know, if he can come up and hit, you know, as Nick said, 250, 260, give you a good on-base percentage, play a few different spots, I think there's a role in the majors for him.
2: Yeah, probably not ever like an everyday player, but certainly a, a role player, bench guy. Uh, certainly doesn't hurt. If we do trade, trade Mancini this offseason, I would think he's got the front front of the line there to be the at least play a part in the DH role early in 2022. But I'll go with my pitcher now. And that's another guy who, after it's Gray Fenter for the record, after his first 10 starts where he had a 8.73 ERA over 33 innings and a 1.76 whip. I was kind of like, oh, he lost it. Not good. Don't have to pay attention to him anymore. And now just looking at he's got his ERA down to 5.47 for the year, thanks to a 3.05 ERA over his last 11 starts, covering 44.1 innings, 1.38 WHIP. He's still walking too many guys, 27 over that span. But he's got 53 Ks, so his strikeouts are going back up. His FIP is even a little bit better than that, 5.26x FIP. The real issue with him is his strikeouts are down a little bit. His walks are up a little bit. But his home run to fly ball rate is really a lot higher than it has been in his career. So just an interesting season for him after he got picked in the Rule 5. And then I kind of gave up on him after a terrible first half. But maybe he is regaining some value as a potential reliever here. I don't know if he can survive the offseason. I doubt he gets picked in the Rule 5 again. But I don't know if he's a minor league free agent or what the deal is with that.
1: Yeah. I had written him off too. I saw him in Richmond early on in the year and that was a stretch where like his first inning he would get shelled for four or five runs and then would throw like four scoreless, three scoreless after that. But it was always that first inning he could never get out of. Um, he's also, to his credit, watching Bowie at the end of this year, he's had to overcome a lot of just terrible umpiring and, um, and I'm not, I'm not just saying that because all oh, the umpires never call Orioles games or Base games correctly. Like, it's been some significantly bad umpiring uh, that Bowie's had to deal with. And it seems to always come when Finter starts. Uh, and Finter isn't someone that I'm stressing over, like, if he gets squeezed or like has a lot of bad calls go his way. But he's overcome those. Uh, he's stayed poised out there in the mound and finished his outing. So it's good to see him finish strong. And I do like what Bob said there that it, it's going to be tough to see Like does he come back in the organization next year? Is he maybe in. Norfolk's bullpen start the year or do the Orioles go ahead and part ways with him because, but at least he was able to turn things around and because it seemed like Chicago Cubs like really destroyed this man.
0: Yeah. You know, he came back from the Cubs um, after they let him go in spring training and really struggled out of the gate at Bowie. And it had me questioning, should he even be in Bowie because we last saw him in Delmarva in 2019 and he's struggled with injuries throughout his career. Maybe Bowie was too, aggressive of a move, despite the fact he had time in major league camp with the Cubs. But yeah, you know, he did settle down as the year went on, which was a good sign. Uh, it will be interesting to see whether or not they bring him back or if this is another Brian Gonzalez situation where, all right, a guy, you know, did well, kind of ended things on a high note a little bit, although Gonzalez, it was just based off of report you're hearing at the alt site, but you know, ends on a high note a little bit, maybe he's able to get picked up by somebody else. Personally, I would like to see him back um, just to see you know, if you did move him to the bullpen, which is something we talked about a while ago in this show, what would he look like as a reliever? And I would be curious to see that. But regardless, it was good to see him rebound um, and put together a strong finish after such a tough start at Bowie. And hopefully he continues that tomorrow night in game one of the playoffs.
1: Yeah, they're going to need him. I want to see Bowie win this series so bad. Just oh. give these guys a ring. Uh um, and it would be cool to see Fenter. Um, I guess I can go with my picks uh, while we wait for uh, Bob to hop back on, hopefully. Uh, I've got uh, – my hitter first is a guy that I know we talked about before we came on the air. We were talking about him briefly. But Daryl Hernays, uh, Hernandez, uh, he went 10 for 24 last week in Delmarva. That's a 417 average with a 940 OPS. He finished the year with an 18-game on-base streak, had a hit in 15 of those, like I, I want to reach out to someone in Del Marva, an instructor down there, and, and ask someone who's a lot smarter than I am about his season because I'm having difficulties in like creating my final like overarching takeaway from nice season. He had the long on base streaks, but the OPS is only 6.90, um, only 18 extra base hits, and as we mentioned a few times, the walks just weren't there he's clearly hitting the ball well when he gets his pitches, but it seems to be like a lot of singles. And I don't know if there's a Joey Ortiz breakout in there or exactly like what went on with him this year, because I want to say it was a really good season for him. But at the same time, like you look at the numbers and there was a lot of, you know, not so great eye popping numbers for him. And so I need someone smarter than me to kind of break down his season. I think.
0: Yeah. His season is one of those that is tough to break down because You remember back in what was then the Gulf Coast League in 2019, Hernays walked all the time. This year, it seemed like he barely drew a walk. Also was not striking out very much, which I take as an encouraging sign. Really, the the things for him going forward are going to be, does that walk rate come back, or was what we saw in 2019 really not indicative of who he is as a hitter? And what does the power projection look like? That's one thing we've heard about a lot with Hernays, is that he's a younger, kind of projectable guy, Maybe he has at least a little bit more doubles power in him, if not home run power. But like you said, Nick, you don't you don't want to put too much hope into a lot of on base streaks and a lot of singles. Um, so the, there are some question marks for me with Hernandez, but there's some definite positives here, and I think overall, despite some of the you know, despite the lack of walks, despite you know maybe the lack of power. Kind of have positive takeaways for the most part from Hernandez's season.
1: Yeah, I think I mean, overall
2: is positive. But yeah, go ahead, Bob.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I had to pop off for a
2: second. There was a bit of a crisis. But uh, um, yeah, I think Hernandez could be a projective uh, breakout candidate, a la Joey Ortiz. I think I've said that a few times this year, just because he's got such a projectable frame. You can just see it. There's muscle to be had there. His jersey is definitely a little baggy on him. <laughs> But i just like to see the way he ended the season. Definitely, I'm sure you mentioned it, but I would love to see that walk rate get back to 2019 levels. And hopefully, you know, as he moves up to Aberdeen, we've seen that's where players start to walk more, at least uh, with Gunnar Henderson and stuff like that. So maybe next year he could be a breakout guy who gets that walk rate back, puts on a little bit of power, and can play some pretty good infield and hit for an average.
1: Yeah, and I just looked. He just turned 20 back in August, so he's going to play pretty much all next year as a 20-year-old as well, so yeah, definitely still lots of time with him. Uh, My pitcher is Zach Beek. I mean, just one of the biggest risers in our updated top 50 list, which you can only find if you're a patron. Um, Our initial list is up on BaltimoreSportsLife.com, and we expanded to 50, but uh, that was from right after the draft. We've updated it since on September 1st for Patrons, and Peak was one of the bigger risers. I think he rises again, possibly, uh, when we do our, one of our final updates of 2021 here in a couple days. But his last start was five innings, two hits, no runs, two walks, six strikeouts. Over his last four starts, he is at 20 innings, so five innings each outing, only four runs with 27 strikeouts. And I've got an easy question of, for you guys of any guesses on who leads the all Orioles minor league pitchers in strikeouts and hint it's not Nikki Janice or Dean Kramer.
2: I thought you were going to ask any guesses who we're going to interview on the show next week, but uh, I'm guessing it's Zach peak for both of those. It is
1: uh, actually, no, sorry, it's Grayson Rodriguez. Uh, it, it is for who we're interviewing next week, which I cannot wait for. Uh, but Grayson Rodriguez leads the organization in strikeouts, but Second place on that list is Zach Beak. Uh So only Grayrod has more strikeouts than Zach Beak in the Orioles system. Pretty much literally no one else is talking about this guy, and I think it's a shame. Uh, I'm very excited to talk about him for sure. Um, that was a day, too. That start also came on a day where Kyle Bradish had a fantastic outing, drew Rom through five perfect innings. If you want an instance of the cupboard is full here in Baltimore, like that day last week was a perfect example. And I know that's just one day, but uh, that's pretty indicative of how I think their seasons have gone overall.
2: Yeah, even Carlos Tavera had pretty good outing that day. It was it was a beautiful day.
0: Yeah, Peak was really impressive this year, and that was a guy that we didn't have a lot uh, to go on coming into this year because he had not pitched professionally. Came over in the Bundy trade uh, for the 2020 season. Obviously, didn't get to pitch then, but everything that I saw with Zach Peak this year, I liked. I liked what he was doing with the secondaries. The fastball looked great, and you know he's one of those guys that right now, if you said to me. Uh, what is his floor and what is his ceiling? The floor is pretty high, and the ceiling, I think, seems to be getting a little bit higher. I think the, the floor with him is good uh, middle-to-late-inning believer. I think the ceiling is probably that he's a, a starter somewhere down the line. So he's really, to me, a guy that rose so much this year that I'm just excited to see him at Bowie next year, hopefully doing more of this.
1: Yeah. I yeah. think a lot of people were calling for him to be promoted to Bowie uh, earlier this year, which I think was a fair, uh, something fair that people wanted to say. I think he could have made a couple stars starts for Bowie this year, but we'll, we'll ask him about that. Maybe.
2: Yeah, I, d- I definitely agree, Zach. I think his floor basically at this point is a pretty solid reliever. I mean, his stuff is pretty wicked, and if he can get the command even better than it already is, then maybe he is a guy that can stick in the starting rotation. But no matter what, he's definitely a good one to have in the cupboard as they say.
0: So for my picks tonight, I'll just go with another pitcher in that cupboard and a guy that you really should be paying attention to, especially with the way he's pitched over the last month or so. And that is Brandon Young, who put together a really impressive season between Delmarva and Aberdeen and another product of that undrafted free agent class of 2020. Between the two levels, 84 and a third innings pits, 3.52 ERA. And in that stretch, he strikes out 114 batters against 37 walks. He was actually a little bit, be- seemingly a little bit better at times at Aberdeen, striking out 54 batters in 37 innings there and ended the season on a high note, putting together a really good September. Um, I'm going to pull up the numbers here right now that I just had and then for some reason hit the back button on. Uh, so, 15 in the third innings, 19 strikeouts, seven walks, 293 ERA. Uh, so, a really good season for the 23 year old right hander and a guy that's probably ticketed for Bowie next year. When coming into this year, we had little to no information about Brandon Young as a pitcher. And look at him now.
2: Yeah, I think John Mioli mentioned that the organization's pretty up on him, pretty high on him right now. And he certainly ended the year strong. Talk about a guy who could be a riser on our October update for our top 50 prospect list. I mean, this is a guy who really finished the year strong, only gave up one hit last week over eight innings with 13 strikeouts. Pretty electric stuff. He's I got to see him. He didn't have his best outing when I saw him with Aberdeen, but the stuff is legit. You can just see it. So excited about him next year for sure. Yeah,
1: I'm appointing myself as the president of the Brandon Young Fan Club. Uh, I love this guy. Um, I was excited to watch him close the year strong in high A as well. You know, the, he did pitch better, I, I think. The strikeout rate jumped like 5%, up to 35% in high A. The walks ticked down a little bit. You mentioned the ERA was 3.89, but the FIP and XFIP were even lower, down in like the low threes. So all good numbers for him. And it was encouraging, too, to hear. like I think it was his last start in Delmarva was statistically one of his worst starts of the season but as Sam Jelinek voice of the Shorebirds you know, he responded to one of our tweets after that start and said look you know Young actually told him that that was the best he felt all year and then he was re- he was rewarded after that terrible start though with a promotion uh, to high a right after that had one you know adjustment start got roughed up a little bit but then pretty much put it on cruise control uh, for the rest of the season there in high A so Many more steps for him to go, but I'm great. I, I love watching him pitch. Uh, I know I think it's one of his coaches that like responds to every single one of our tweets about Brandon Young, like, best change up in the country. Um, <laughs> and I think his curveball is actually – that's the pitch that I think that stands out the most for sure. But, yeah, as soon as the Orioles announced that they had signed Young last year, I watched one of his college starts. I fell in love instantly, and so I'm happy to see him have some success early on.
0: So my pick for hitters is a guy you've heard a lot about this summer, and that's Miss A.L. De Sonne. He wrapped up the Florida Complex League with a 930 OPS. And this is a guy who just turned 19 back in July, uh, showing some real speed right now. And with a frame of 6'3", 155, according to his baseball reference listing, certainly has room to fill out uh, and hit for more power. Earned a late season promotion to Marva, but we didn't get to see him much when he was there. Uh, only appeared in six games, but... He's now in a position where he will be a 19 year old starting center fielder in Low A next year, which is really a good thing to see. I love the speed, I love the instincts that he has in center field. He's got a lot of speed right now, but he hits with enough authority to make me believe that as he does fill out a little bit, we're going to see those power numbers tick out, tick, uh, tick up a little bit. I don't know what his ceiling is as far as home runs go, but I know that he's going to hit for more power as he starts to fill out. So Desone is a guy that if he was not on your radar before the season, he should be now because for my money, he had one of the best seasons, the lower minors this year.
2: Yeah. And I love what the Orioles did with him here the last couple of weeks, even though he only played in six games, picked up a couple of hits, a couple of RBIs, just let him get a taste of what he's up for next year. Give him some motivation heading into the off season, you know, hit the weights and get the drills in. And I think he could really put up a, a great season and work his way up to Aberdeen by and I think he'll be like barely twenty years old at that point. So love this kid. Love uh love everything we've seen from him this year and hopefully he continues it next year.
1: And I think I saw earlier a couple of days ago, like he was one of if not the top statistical like hitter in the Ford Complex League this year. So good positives there. Um, you know, we didn't get to see a whole lot of him in Del Marva, but I think what we did see, he was clearly a very raw prospect still, but you saw the speed, you got a sense of the energy that he brings to the game. Uh, it was pre- kind of pretty obvious that he was kind of like wide-eyed out there on the field, being a, a young teenager with very little pro experience, but he's going to settle in. Like we mentioned before, it's important to be patient with guys like they saw who are in that position, very young, missed a year when they seventeen, 17, 18 years old, key developmental year. So He's going to be 20, 19. He doesn't turn 20 until July. So it's going to spend most of the year as a 19-year-old in Delmarva. It's a great way. You can just sit back and relax and, and take it easy. Not take it easy like that, Delmarva. But, like, there's no rush for Uh Plenty of time for him to develop down there next year.
0: Absolutely. So that does it for us this week. Uh, be sure to continue to follow us on Twitter at BSL and the Verge. Check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for the latest Orioles coverage and of your winning Baltimore Ravens after last night, who doesn't want to read some Ravens coverage. So head over to Baltimore sports to check that out. Be sure to join the message board, hop into the discussions about the Orioles Ravens and more. Uh, we'll be back next week with Zach peak Orioles farm system, uh, reliever or pitcher. Sorry. And uh, for our listeners in Canada, if you've not voted yet, go ahead and do it. The polls are still open apparently. So for Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, This is Zach Sved, and you've been listening to On The Verge.